Oh, guess what Leah asked me today? Permission to wear a tiny, tiny dress to homecoming? I saw the page she left up on the computer. Oh, don't get me started. Um, no, no, she asked if your dad was coming for Thanksgiving. My dad? <laughs> we haven't had Thanksgiving with him in at least five years. Apparently, she noticed. No, she just wanted to know why. Well, he gets together with some neighbors from his retirement community. He prefers it that way. You prefer it that way. I think we all prefer it that way. My, my dad's not the easiest dinner guest. Okay, I know, you're right. So what'd you say? I told her that you and your dad just don't get along all that oh. well. Well, <laughs> honestly, do you really think she doesn't know? You need to talk to her, or she is just gonna keep wondering why her grandfather is never around, even though he only lives 30 minutes away. I don't want to have that conversation. Part of the reason we don't see him is to protect her from, from that dysfunction. He's not dysfunctional to her. In Leah's mind, he's that happy older guy who lives in a condo, does crossword puzzles, and likes the pats. Yeah, well, she doesn't know the, the man that put down every decision I ever made, who, who made it clear that I was never good enough. Oh. You name it, we fought about it. Grades, sports, jobs, politics, even church. But you stopped fighting as you got older. Yeah, we stopped after, after mom died. We stopped arguing. We also stopped talking. I used to call him every Sunday. And uh, then after we talked about the football game, there was nothing left to say. And then I, I, one week I didn't call him, and he didn't call me, and that was that. We respect each other by leaving each other alone. <laughs> what can I say? You, you don't pick your family. <laughs> you can't really unpick them either. You know, it was kind of weird, though, when, when Leah asked me, because your dad had been on my mind a lot lately. And, uh, well, you know, when she started mentioning him, I no. almost felt like... I felt like God was nudging me, nudging us, to, to try again, to, to reach out to no, him. Pam, you don't just carve a turkey together and poof, everything goes away. It, it doesn't work like that. And Leah doesn't understand that yet, so... I'm worried about what Leah does understand. And the example we're giving her, are we just cutting difficult people out of our lives? I'm worried that one day she's gonna feel that way about us. And you know what? I think she already does feel that way about us half the time already. You know, when Leah was born, um, I had all these ideas about the father I was going to be. Loving, listening, supporting, serving. I wanted to be the, the kind of dad that she could go to, not, not the kind that shut her down. And I haven't been perfect. 
And my dad, he didn't get it all wrong. But there's, there's too much water under that bridge. Uh, and besides, it's just between him and me. So. No, it's not. Your relationship with your father affects me and Leah, your siblings. You, you know, sometimes I think your dad really misses you but he's just too proud to reach out first. <laughs> I don't know about that. Well, look, what if we pray about it? I mean, let's take a chance. Why not invite him for Thanksgiving? He won't come. So why not ask? It's just a meal. Well, of all the relationships available to us as human beings, surely the most challenging and the most promising are family relationships. I mean, the possibilities are so good. Identity, belonging, nurture, support, love. But the realities can be so disappointing. Misunderstanding, heartache, hurt, loneliness. We see the whole thing unfolding in this little drama we just watched. A, a father and son who want more for their relationship but don't know how to get there. A husband and wife struggling to understand each other and to help each other but, but not knowing how. A, a, a child wanting nothing more than for her whole family to be together for Thanksgiving and wondering why that has to be so hard. And we all have challenging relationships like this in our families, whether the family we're living with immediately or our extended family. We all have high hopes for the kind of people we want to be, the, uh, the kind of family life we want to have. But so often we find ourselves settling for something far less than that. Why is that? How can we get to family relationships that thrive? Remember, we're learning that to thrive is to flourish. It's to prosper. It's to grow and bear fruit. Thriving isn't just what we want for our lives and our world. It's what God wants. He made us to flourish. He created this beautiful world for us to enjoy. He placed us in the middle of it. He brought the man and woman together and said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And so this human flourishing was meant to begin with the family in relationship. The man and his wife were naked, we're told, and they felt no shame. What a picture what a possibility of intimacy and, and, and connection and love and, and freedom. They were meant to come together as one, bringing more life and more love into God's good world. What a vision. But it didn't take long for the whole thing to fall apart. For the man and woman to fail each other and then accuse each other and then hide from each other and God. By the next generation, sibling rivalry had broken out already. And instead of being his brother's keeper, Cain became his brother's killer. And every generation since has struggled with this tension, 
between the possibilities and the realities of family life, between the hope and the heartache involved. I'm sure every one of us listening here today can think of family relationships that are less than they could be, less than we would want them to be. And with the holiday season approaching and the possibility of family coming together again, we have reasons to be hopeful and reasons to be fearful. So let's turn once again to this book we call the Bible and to this ancient letter written by the Apostle Paul to a community of people very much like, like us. People who are just as eager for their lives and relationships to, to thrive, but people who found life and relationship just as challenging as we do. We're about halfway through this book that we call Colossians. In the first half, we learned who we are in Christ. In the second half, we're learning how we live in Christ. So a couple of weeks ago, we talked about sexuality and our habits of speech. Last week, we talked about thriving in our church relationships. Next week, we'll talk about how we thrive in our working lives. Today, we'll talk about how to thrive at home. Now, this, this message on family happens to be very timely for me in a strange sort of way. I was working on this message at home on Friday when I got a call from Karen, who I thought was at work. And she said, uh, we had just gotten a delivery at the house. Would I go outside and pick it up? So I stepped out the door to find Karen and my four adult children standing there saying, surprise! <laughs> they had flown in from all over the country for a, a birthday I've got coming up in a couple of weeks. They had left their jobs and their families and their lives so just the six of us could be together for the weekend. Karen had arranged the whole thing. And we've had a remarkable time this weekend, just the six of us being together, taking walks in the woods and going into Boston for dinner and eating our favorite meals and reliving old memories and arguing theology and politics and just being a family. It's been a remarkable weekend. And I am feeling like the most blessed husband and father on the face of the planet right now. And I'm deeply grateful to God, to Karen, and to the many of you who have loved and prayed for and invested in our family for these many, many years. I'm a deeply grateful man. And so these things we're talking about are very close to the surface uh, for me here today. I also want to give you a heads up. In a couple of weeks, we're going to take a break from our Thrive series and talk politics. I've tried to resist, believe me. <laughs> in 30 years of pastoring, I don't think I've ever had as many requests for sermons on politics, as I'm getting now. So we're all looking for a bit of wisdom and perspective, so we're not going to get partisan about it, but we, I think we need a week just to look to God's Word and get some guidance uh, in these challenging days. So we'll do that in two weeks on October 30th. But today we'll turn our attention to an easy topic like family, okay? <laughs> so we're looking at four simple verses, four simple verses that raise some very profound questions. Colossians 3 verses 18 through 21. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Four simple verses, but they raise an awful lot of questions. Wives, submit to your husbands? What does that mean? 
Does it make any sense in the world in which we live today? Husbands, love your wives. Do we really have to command husbands to love their wives? That doesn't sound very romantic. <laughs> Children, obey your parents in everything. Really? Everything? Like to what age? Fathers, do not embitter your children. Why are you picking on fathers? And what parent would want to embitter their child anyway? Well, clearly, we have some explaining to do here. So let's spend a little time uh, figuring out what Paul is and isn't saying, and then try to make some practical application to family life that thrives. But it turns out that instructions like this would not have been all that unfamiliar to Paul's original readers. It was very common in that ancient world for philosophers, for sages to propose household codes, kind of the way things would be done in a particular family. And we do the same kind of thing today. We probably call them house rules, ways that our family or some other family operates. I actually found a few of them online. Some of them are pretty mundane. If you spill it, wipe it up. If you open it, close it. If you wear it, hang it up. If it whines, feed it. <laughs> Even if it's a husband. <laughs> Others were a bit more lofty. Love each other. Laugh a lot. Keep your promises. Well, chances are you've got your written or unwritten household code. We always eat dinner together. Homework before TV. Dad controls the remote. Things like that, all right? <laughs> So Paul's readers would not have been surprised to find a, a code of, of conduct, but they would have been very surprised by some of the behaviors that Paul calls for. They would have been surprised, first of all, to Paul, uh, find Paul addressing wives personally. Remember, women in that culture were, person, were, were property, not persons. They had virtually no identity or status apart from their relationship to some man in their life. And yet here, Paul addresses them as if they're persons in their own right. And he mentions them first without even addressing any of the men in the crowd. They would have been surprised probably to hear Paul use the word submit instead of the word obey. Remember, Paul's speaking to an overtly patriarchal culture. It would have been universally understood that the husband, the father, the man is, is in the position of authority in the house. But Paul doesn't appeal to wives on the basis of the husband's authority. He appeals to them on the basis of their freedom of choice. You see, when Paul uses the word submit instead of the word obey, he's making a very particular statement. He's empowering them to make their own decision, to individually, in a self-determining way, choose to respond to their husbands in a particular way. He's treating them as independent beings. Notice the verb is, is in the middle voice, submit yourselves, emphasizing their personal agency. And to submit to someone means to put them first, to let them go ahead, to, to give them precedence in your experience. So Paul's challenging them in this patriarchal culture, not to obey out of duty or fear, but to joyfully, willingly put their husband's needs and interests ahead of their own. The same way that the men would have been surprised to hear that they were supposed to love their wives. In marriage in that ancient world, they were arranged marriages based on economics and social advantage. What's love got to do with it? The men would likely have said had Tina Turner been around. 
Husbands were expected to provide for their wives, protect their wives, have children by their wives, but that was about it. It was common for men to go outside the home for intimacy and companionship. So they would have been surprised by the command to love their wives, especially since Paul uses that agape word for love, sacrificial, selfless, unconditional love. What self-respecting husband would put his wife's interests and needs ahead of his own? Keep going. The Colossians would have been surprised by the fact that Paul speaks directly to children as if they too have some say in how they live their lives and how they relate to people, as if they too can be full-fledged followers of Jesus. And finally, they would have been surprised by the command for fathers to attend to the emotional development of their children. Fathers were barely engaged in the lives of their young children. They would get involved later on mainly to teach them the law and to teach them some skills so they could be productive members of society. Fathers were free in that ancient culture to beat their children, to starve their children, to to abandon their children if they wanted. Most fathers in that world would have been worried about being too easy on their kids, not too harsh. Now, certainly we're making some generalizations here. Certainly there was some tenderness and affection in ancient homes, and probably more so in Jewish households. But household codes in those days were based on authority, power, control, and subservience. All this to say Paul's household code would not only have been surprising, it would have been revolutionary. Words that we read through our 21st century ears as stifling to these readers would have been liberating. He treats every member of the family with dignity as individuals in their own right. He equally affirms men and women children and adults as full-fledged followers of Christ. He calls on those in positions of power, husbands and fathers, to wield their power gently in service to the members of their family. And he calls on those in positions of weakness, wives and children, not to be resentful of that, but rather to freely and willingly serve and love the men in their lives. Instead of propping up authority structures, Paul flattens them, calling every member to sacrifice and service and submission. Now, just one simple aside here. There is nothing anywhere in this passage that would condone abuse or control, controlling, manipulative, domineering, intimidating behavior. There's nothing in this passage to suggest that a spouse or a child should live with that kind of abuse or manipulation out of a misguided desire to serve. No, what what Paul does here is he gives both spouses, wives, women, children, he gives them power to, to take responsibility for the health and safety of their home. And sometimes that means speaking up. Sometimes that means asking for help. Sometimes it means getting out at least for a period of time, until some safety can be established. So if you should find yourself in a frightening situation like that, don't stay there. Ask for help, and we're happy to help. So please speak to us if you need it. But what I most want us to hear here is that Paul doesn't appeal to biology or sociology or cultural norms as the basis for family life. He appeals entirely upon their faith in Christ. As is fitting in the Lord, 
he says to wives. For this pleases the Lord, he reminds children. Seven times in this household section, he says, in the Lord. And the whole thing flows out of chapter, out of verse uh, 17 that we looked at last week. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So our family relationships can never truly thrive unless and until we are in a right relationship with God through Christ. Because it was God who made us for each other, for relationship. It was God who, who brought Adam and Eve together and established the family as the basic unit of human flourishing. And it was God who gave us the Lord Jesus, who by his life and death showed us what sacrificial, submissive love looks like. Paul makes it clearer in another letter he wrote from prison about the same time, this one to the Ephesians. He says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. Notice how central Christ is to God's vision of a thriving home. Our relationships to the home are meant to flow from and be reflective of Christ's love for us. So that's our lesson from this week from Colossians chapter 3. We thrive when we love the members of our family the way Christ loves us. And that's true whatever your family situation might be, whether you're married or single, near or far to your family, whether you're living with them or on your own. We all have people in this world that we are connected to by birth, by marriage, by adoption, by care. And we thrive when we love those people the way Christ has loved us. That's a very wonderful idea. It's very preachable. It's even tweetable, if you want. But what does it really look like in everyday life? How do we practically apply this to our challenging relationships? I got to thinking about how Jesus loves us. I'd like to share three thoughts that came to my mind that may help us love our families a little bit better. First, we love each other like Christ loves us when we make the first move when we make the first move. Isn't this the hardest thing to do? Especially at home for some reason. The first to say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. The first to say, I love you. The first to say, there's a problem, I think we need to talk. The first to take a risk and reveal something personal. The first to volunteer to do the dishes or the diaper duty. First to pick up the phone and say, why don't you come over? Making that first move is so vulnerable because you don't know how the other person's going to respond. It's, it's frightening because now you've accepted some responsibility for this aspect of the relationship. And what if it doesn't go well? It's hard to take the first move. When I thought about how Jesus loves us, I realized he always makes the first move. He came here to us. He entered our space. We weren't asking him to do that. And he entered that space vulnerably 
as a child, as an infant. He took the risk knowing he could and would be rejected. He volunteered to go to the cross for our sins and he did all of these things while we were in the wrong. The Bible says while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so Christ moved toward us so that we could be sons and daughters of God. How can we not move toward the people he asks us to love in his name? So as you're thinking about those challenging relationships out there, does someone need to make the first move? Is there an apology or an expression of love or, or some act of something that needs to be done or said to perhaps give God a chance to work and bring their relationship back together? A second way for us to love our families the way Christ loves us is to express our affection. Express your affection. I was struck by a certain tenderness in this household code. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husband, love your wives. Do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents. Father, do not embitter your children. There's affection here that wasn't typical in that, in that world. There's intimacy here that can be challenging in any time to get to. We saw it again in our drama, this, the father and son who, who couldn't seem to get together, the son feeling hurt and disappointed by things he never got from his father, the father feeling uncertain about how his son would treat him. But instead of expressing those feelings and those thoughts, they just keep their distance and don't talk. As I thought about this, I was struck by how freely Jesus expressed his love to his disciples. I mean, he told them, I have called you friends. As the Father loves me, so I have loved you. He said the words right to their faces. But then he also demonstrated in all kinds of ways. He touched them, washing their feet with his hands. He spent time with them, three years, 24-7, walking, talking, playing, laughing, praying. He gave gifts to them. This is my body, this is my blood. And he served them, cooking breakfast by the sea, dying on the cross for their sins. All five love languages, did you catch them all? Words of affirmation, giving gifts, physical touch, acts of service, quality time. Jesus did them all for them and for us. And so our family relationships thrive when we express our affection for one another. So, spouses, have you told your husbands or wives lately that you love them? Have you, do you tell them creatively and freely and consistently? Parents, grandparents, have you told your children or grandchildren you're proud of them and you're so happy to spend a day with them? Children, have you told your parents you appreciate them and respect them? Siblings, have you told one another that you're glad to be in each other's lives, even though you're not the boss of me? <laughs> have you told your nieces and nephews that they're special? Have you called that distant relative just to let them know they're on your mind and in your prayers and that you hope you get to see them someday? A third way to love our families the way Christ loved us is to lay down our needs, interests, and pride for their sake. 
Because that's what agape love is. It's sacrificial love. It's selfless love. It's submissive love. It's putting other people's needs and interests ahead of our own. And that does not come naturally to us. It's not even counterintuitive. It is countercultural. Have you seen the recent Toyota commercials that have come out? This is really upbeat, catchy pop tune. We get these images of, uh, of people having fun, doing all kinds of things in life together. Let's give it a watch for a minute. You'll see what I mean. You don't own me. Don't try to change me in any way. You don't own me. Don't tie me down, because I'll never stay. Get the message. I mean, it's a fun commercial. It's a great song. They're great scenes. These folks are having fun. But do you notice something missing? There's no families there. There's no parents and children. There's no spanning of generations. There's one older couple doing a dance in a parking lot. But other than that, these people are all single and unattached. They don't owe anybody anything. They can do what they want, where they want. Now, I realize they're targeting a certain demographic here, and it's not the minivan crowd. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with buying a Corolla. There's nothing wrong with being single and unattached. That can be a fun, informative season of your life. But... We were made for relationships. We were made to be attached to other people. And those first attachments come to the people who are a part of what we would call our family. And so we're not always free, perhaps, at least in the love of Christ, to do what we want, to do what we please. But we put their needs and interests ahead of our own. And the ironic thing, the, the remarkable thing, is that when we do these things, when we put others first, we thrive. And that's why family life is so important, because it forces us to confront our selfishness and our smallness. It presents us with opportunities every day to put other people ahead of ourselves. To let them sleep while we get up with the baby or get breakfast started to watch their show or movie instead of ours, to let them choose where to go for vacation, to pursue their career instead of our own, to play wiffle ball with your kids instead of playing golf with your buddies, to visit Aunt Matilda instead of having the day to yourself, giving up the right and the need to win or to be right or to have the last word, to love someone who may not be able to love us back because they're too broken, or because they don't even know who we are anymore. The wonder of it all is that when we do these things, 
When we lay down our needs, interests, and pride for the sake of others, we thrive. And they thrive. God's designed it that way. And so as challenging and as heartbreaking as family relationships can be, we need them. They become ways by which we become more and more like Christ. And that's good for us, it's good for our families, and it's good for the world. Of the six of us, my family, we've had a wonderful time this weekend just being together, reliving old memories, telling stories. And as we look back over the years, we fully acknowledge we have not been a perfect family, and I have not been a perfect husband or father. There are opportunities I missed that I wished I hadn't missed. There are things I said I wish I had not said. There are times I was more harsh than I needed to be. We reminded ourselves of some hard days and some tough moments. We made our trips to the police station and the principal's office and the emergency room and all those things. But to the best of our ability, we tried to follow Christ, individually and collectively, to put him at the center of our lives and relationships. And when you do that, even when you don't get it right, always, God's grace is able to work. We give God room to work wonderfully and redemptively in our families. Now, I realize every family has their own story. Your story may not look anything at all like mine. And your family may not look at anything all like mine. But whatever your family looks like, however challenging your relationships might be, there's an opportunity there for you to love someone the way Christ has loved you. And when you do that, you thrive, and they have an opportunity to thrive as well. So we left our drama family, our imaginative family, up here at a pretty tough moment father and son not able to connect with each other, a husband and wife struggling to get to a better place, a, a teenager wondering what's wrong with our family. We've all been in moments like that. But what could happen? What might happen if one family member was willing to make the first move? If someone were willing to express in some halting, tentative way their affection for another family member? What if someone were willing to lay down their pride and their need to be right? What could happen? Let's use our imagination for just a moment. Hi. Hi, Dad. Yeah, yeah, it has been a long time. Yeah, well, the phone works both ways, you know. Uh, any, anyway, um, never mind. Uh, Dad, Dad, do um, you want to come Thanksgiving with us this year? Yeah, Pam's going to be cooking. and uh... Right, no, right, yeah. No, 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 I understand, yeah. All right. Okay. No, no wait, wait, Dad, Dad, uh, just a second. Uh, what, what about next Sunday? Yeah, the Pats game? Right, Broncos. Can't stand them, no. You, you, you want to come? Yeah, uh, you know, Leah, Leah's been uh, asking about you. 
no, I'm not making that up. No, she's your granddaughter. And, and I, um, I uh, dropped the ball lately. Why don't you come? Okay. Oh, right, okay. All right, well, uh, we'll see you then. Now, we all know that family stories don't always have happy endings. Sometimes the phone call doesn't go well. It's a risk to make that move, to say something, to give up. But it's a risk that Christ was willing to take for us. And maybe it's a risk he's asking you to take on behalf of your family. Why don't we bow in prayer as we commit these things to the Lord? Thank you, Lord, for providing us with this lofty and yet practical guidance for the most wonderful and challenging relationships of our lives. We give ourselves a quiet moment here, Lord, just to hear your voice. If there's something you might be asking us to say or do. We thank you, Lord, that we are not left alone to do this. We have the guidance and example of the Lord Jesus. We have the help of your Holy Spirit within. We have the support of our faith family around us. And so, Lord, help us to act on whatever it is you might be prompting us to say or do in the days to come. We pray for families that are thriving these days, that they might receive this season with great joy and gratitude, with thanks to you and with generosity towards the world around them. We pray for families that are struggling these days, that they might find you to be faithful and present even in these difficult days and to press through believing that better days can be ahead. We pray for healing for those who are feeling hurt. We pray for a sense of your presence for those who are lonely. We're grateful for the family of faith that we are brothers and sisters in Christ here in this place. And so we commit all of these relationships to you with gratitude and with expectancy. In Jesus' name, amen.